0: I'd like to talk to you tonight about my own experience as a writer more than anything else. I guess uh, maybe one reason is writers don't get much of a chance to talk about themselves, but another reason, I think, is because I have a feeling that my experience as a writer has some universal qualities in it, uh, qualities or examples or lessons perhaps, although I don't like to preach, that uh, might have some meaning for other Americans and uh, for particularly for other Americans who might want to be writers. I think the, most, the best way to start it off would be to say, quite bluntly, I was born in a ghetto, but I'm not black. I'm Irish, Irish-American, but we never used that term where I grew up. You were Irish, and that's all there was to it. And this was a very, very nice feeling, in the part of New Jersey where I lived. My father was one of the biggest men in the city and he was Irish and the Irish ran the town and we were sort of the ruling class, a pretty corrupt mo- ruling class I might admit. But there was the basic experience of the ghetto entwined throughout my whole boyhood and young manhood. What is the basic experience of the ghetto. It is the feeling, I would say, of them and us. Outside there's this big, dangerous American world that's trying to hurt us in some way and we have to fight by every dirty or clean trick that we can find to hang on to what we've got. In the Irish mythology. This meant corrupt politics. It justified stealing votes because the black-legged Republicans, the APAs, and all the other epithets that we had for the Protestants were doing the same thing. And if they won, we'd all be in the poorhouse. Another part of this whole ghetto experience was the element of Catholicism That reinforced it and, in fact, gave it justification because the Church told you that the world was an evil place. And it was very easy to translate this very vague and general idea into a specific evil, this secular American society outside the confines of our little ghetto. As a result, I went to parochial school Catholic high school, Catholic college, I knew practically no Catholics. Uh, excuse me, I knew practically no non-Catholics until I got into the service. And that was where the walls of my ghetto started to crumble. I found out in the Navy that the rest of the world was really not as hostile to Catholics and to Irish as the Uh, church and uh, my father's generation kept saying they were. They weren't trying to destroy your faith. In fact, the closest friend I had in the Navy turned out to be the Protestant chaplain aboard the the ship that I was on, primarily because he was a terrific basketball player, I might add, and and, uh, that was my favorite uh, preoccupation at the time. But that was the beginning of uh, the crumbling of my ghetto walls. And Then I began to look outside and inside this Catholic ghetto at the same time. When I went to college, for instance, I collided again with this insistence that there had to be a separate Catholic culture. The favorite uh, summation of this point of view was in my freshman literature book. It was uh, stated by a very prominent Jesuit, uh, Father George Bull, S.J. I've always uh, thought that an irreverent joke could be made on his name. However, uh, he summed it up as follows. Can a Catholic form of Catholic school safeguard his religion? He has never asked himself the further question, can such a man safeguard his culture? Catholicism is a culture, not merely a creed, an attitude, a whole complexus of things taken for granted in every activity of life and not in the sphere of the strictly religious alone. This was a pretty formidable challenge for a young man, but the more I studied this American Catholic culture, the more I saw that it was ersatz. And this, I think, is another aspect of the ghetto experience that made me begin to loathe it. The culture that the ghetto generates is rooted in fear, in negativism, and in false pride. And as a result, it never produces anything really worthwhile or vital. I saw that the people who had created something, and by now I had some vague stirrings of wanting to be a writer, I saw that the writers who had created something in America, the Catholic writers particularly, whom I was interested in, like James T. Farrell, and F. Scott Fitzgerald, and even Hemingway, who had a Catholic, slightly Catholic background, well, they had completely turned their backs on this ghetto and taken on what you might call the whole American experience. And more and more, I felt that this was what I had to do, too. But it wasn't easy. I had to face my father and my teachers. I can remember my sophomore English teacher, a very gifted Jesuit, who told us quite frankly that if we read the New Yorker, we were endangering our faith because they had a secular tinge, a secular message that was, uh, deterioro- had a deteriorating effect on our Catholicism. And my father had the immigrant's attitude. He was the son of an immigrant, I should add, but he had the immigrant attitude of play it safe. He thought uh, that there was absolutely nothing that uh, someone should be beyond the professions, a lawyer or a doctor and possibly a priest, although that obviously didn't set too well with him since he never went to church himself. But I had to fight these. I had to fight the memories that my father had, very real memories. Let me tell you a little story that my father often told me. Well, not often, but occasionally told me to try to reinforce and justify his attitude toward life. I think it will help you realize that I'm not kidding when I say that I was born in a ghetto. My father was born in a downtown slum in Jersey City. Right next door to the tenement in which he lived was a watch factory. Each day, people queued up at this watch factory to go to work. They were hired on a day-by-day basis. My father had to quit school when he was just out of the eighth grade. He was 13 or 14 years old. And each morning, he'd get up and get in line on this and wa- to go to work in this watch factory. The pay, incidentally, was a dollar a day. He would stand there in line, and they'd move past this fellow whom my father always described as a high-collared Protestant clerk. He sat on a great big high desk, like something out of Charles Dickens. And each boy that stepped up in front of them, in front of him, most of them were boys, young, pretty young kids that did this kind of work, and quite a few women, as a matter of fact, he would say to them very bluntly, Protestant or Catholic? If they said Catholic, he said, no work today. If they said Protestant, they went in and painted watches for a day and got their dollar. This was the way the Protestant ruling class shoved their superiority in the faces of my father's generation. When a Catholic was hired at the Colgate factory in Jersey City, which was one of the biggest industries in town at this time, they literally put the news in headlines in the daily paper, Colgate hires first Catholic. So you see, it really was a ghetto, and they had very good reason for being angry and afraid of these people because they'd been hurt by them very badly in their day. They'd had their inferiority drummed into them. This is the other peculiarity of the ghetto experience that I don't think we face up to often enough. The ghetto is a strange kind of life in which you keep telling yourself we're better than we are, than they are out there. And actually, your better is is second rate. But you never really compare it. You never go outside to compare it. So you can go on kidding yourself along this line forever and ever. I always remember uh, a guy, uh, I think if I recall correctly, his name was Mahoney, who was the reigning intellectual in our area. And he had read Spinoza. That was his claim to fame. And it more or less had destroyed his Catholic faith. Well, he used to hold forth in the neighborhood saloon, and everyone thought that Mahoney was probably the most brilliant fellow they ever met. Actually, he was nothing but a drunk, a garrulous drunk. And uh, if he had ever tried to uh, bear his wisdom in a, in a against a real thinker, he would have been annihilated overnight. But we went on thinking, at least while I was a teenager, that Mahoney was uh, a brilliant and bright guy. But during college, I struggled to fight off this ghetto experience. I read history. That is, I think, the way people escape from ghettos. At least that's my recommendation. And being a writer, too, because I feel, as I hope I can explain, that I wrote my way out of this ghetto as well. But in the beginning, I read history. I didn't take a history course at my college, Fordham, because I was afraid that it would be biased, that it would be one more nail in the ghetto coffin. And I should add, by the way, that I didn't think of it as a ghetto at this time. All I knew was that I was enclosed in this great big suffocating blanket of ideas, most of them negative. So I read history on my own. In one year, the only year I ever kept track of the number of books I read, uh, if I recall correctly, it was sophomore year in college I read 216 history books on my own, and uh, most of them were not American history. They were world history. I wanted to find out what was going on outside of the United States as much as anything else. And I also began to read Irish literature. This is part of my ghetto background, of course. But fortunately, Irish literature is also European, and I discovered James Joyce. He was the great hinge in the gate through which I exited from my ghetto because Joyce turned his back on Ireland and faced the whole world and tried to write a universal kind of literature. And he was my hero, my star, my motivation for trying to do the same thing with my own talents. But in the same time, there was always this pull back, this pull back. I remember one time... We were sitting around talking just at the end of our college education. It was uh, toward the end of senior year. And it was about 12 or 14 of us who were all very discontented young men, at least as discontented and unhappy as the young men on campuses today. And we had criticized our education violently in our s- school magazine and in conversation and so forth. And I took a poll, an instant poll, I went around this circle, we were all sitting there drinking beer and getting slushed, and uh, I said, uh, well, we all know that our education was uh, sour, it it stank in a word, and uh, it just didn't work, and uh, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to try to change this Catholic, claustrophobic experience, are we going to try to break out into the American world, are we going to try to help others break out, more important? Because when you're young, you're, I think that's the greatest feeling. You want to lead. You want to be leading a crusade. Uh, you want to be helping other people. It was a very dismaying experience to get the answer to this question because around the circle I went and each man said, no, I'm going to be a doctor and uh, I'm going to have a lot of Catholic patients and that would rock the boat if I uh, became an anti-Catholic or a critic of the church or what have you. And another man said, uh, I'm going to be a lawyer, and the same thing holds true. And other people were going into business, and they didn't want to rock any boats. And uh, again, I'm not bragging, I'm just reporting a poll, but I was the only guy in that circle who said, well, by God, I'm going to do something. And I tried to do it in my writing. My first book was a violent attack on the Catholic Church. And it was almost published by Farris, Strauss, and uh, Cudahy. But uh, just after it was taken by one of the editors, the leading Catholic of the publishing house read it and decided that they refused to have their imprint on this book because it was too negative, too critical of the church. So here was another experience of the ghetto. A very cruel, cruel one. Believe me, nothing ever plunged me lower in morale than that blow. That I had thought I had sold my first novel, and uh, it just fell f- flat on its face once it got into, ran into this barrier. The ghetto, you see, doesn't like anyone to criticize it. They don't want to feel that their inferiority is real. They they feel that you're an enemy if you are exposing them to the world, because. It's the old psychology, again, of them and us. And how dare you uh, say that we are inferior. You're leaving us open to a thrust, a possibly deadly thrust. I remember once a priest wrote to me in in a violent letter and said, with friends like you, we don't need enemies. That's the old ghetto psychology at work again. Anyway, I kept rewriting this book. And I, over the years, wrote other books. I became, somewhat by accident almost, a historian, particularly an American historian. But looking back on it now, I see that all of my writing and my study was an attempt to work my own way out of this ghetto. The American history was my way of trying to find out what this country was all about. And my novels, all of which are interconnected, And all set in this same city, which I decline to name, for obvious reasons. It's surprising, incidentally, a great many people have said they thought it was Boston. Other people thought it was Chicago. Other people even thought it was New York or Philadelphia. It's it's the universal American city of our time. That's how I see it. And my novels, which are all set in this, tell the story of my generation struggling to emerge from this ghetto. While I was writing these books, I was rewriting this first novel, which, as I said, was a bitter blast at the Catholic Church, a summons to destruction, to abandonment. Meanwhile, the Church was going through the very kind of reformation that I predicted they would go through in this first novel. They were becoming involved with what I call American freedom. The ghetto walls were crumbling as every ghetto walls eventually crumble in this country. Because freedom is an irresistible force. You can't fight it no matter how high you try to build your ghetto walls, no matter how intensely you've been hurt for whatever reason. So as I rewrote this novel, I began to incorporate this experience. And I realized that I was changing too. The novel, instead of becoming a blast a vicious negative denunciation became a kind of search for reconciliation between my father's generation and my generation and I hope between my son's generation because now my sons are judging me I have three sons and a daughter and she's kind to me because daughters like their fathers but my sons are judging me just as harshly as I judge my father's generation so I see the novel which was published two or three weeks ago its title is The Sandbox Tree and the first title I think you'll be amused to hear was called A Waste of Shame uh, it was from Shakespeare expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action that's what I thought that the Catholic experience did to people wasted their shame, wasted their spirituality. But as I grew older, I could see the values in some aspects of the Catholic experience. I could see the interpenetration of this experience by the American experience. And this is what I tried to put into my revised version of the novel, The Sandbox Tree. I tried to show the whole pattern of American life as I see it. I recently published a book called The Golden Door, which is for children, most young people really, uh, teenagers. It's a story of American immigration. And in studying this story, you see the pattern which I've tried to dramatize in my novels again and again and again. The fear, the walls of the ghetto, and then the gradual collapse of these walls and the entry into the wider freedom Of American life. It isn't an easy task, it isn't a pleasant experience, and my novels are full of vicious and nasty people saying vicious and nasty things, I'm afraid, and that's one reason why I have a feeling that I've never been too popular with Catholic audiences, because I, I guess, as one friend of mine said, you're just too tough, you tell too much of the truth. But now I think that Catholics are emerging into the world of American freedom to the point where they can take the truth, the old truths and the new truths. They don't have to be afraid anymore. And this is the great thing about coming out of the ghetto. You can take things from it into American life. You don't have to be afraid to uh, come out. You don't have to abandon everything that's behind. I have a very strong feeling of my identity as an Irish-American, and yet I also don't use the term very often, uh, except now when I'm trying to explain things. Most of the time I have uh, a, a simple feeling that I'm an American, and that's all you need to be a writer, yeah, because the the freedom is the essence of, of, of the writer's experience. I'd like to read to you an, a, a passage from an earlier novel of mine, King of the Hill, which I think tries to say this whole thing in a rather few words. Uh, One of the characters looks at one of the older generation and she thinks about what he means. She says to herself, No, Ben, no. You are wrong. You can beat your own kind. Your own kind can destroy you. Amazing what she was getting from this quiet, almost offhand conversation with this old man a vision of the generations groping up and then outward into the nation and the world. Those first travelers like her grandfather and Ben O'Connor's father clinging to their little ghetto in their own section of the city and then their sons conquering the city, making the whole city their home to find themselves equally lost before their own children who want to be citizens not of this one city but of every city. It was kind of a journey into the heart of America. Beware, Faith, you have a weakness for rhetoric, But we are all taking a journey into an idea of America, a journey full of risk and doubt and the will to endure a terrifying mixture of mediocrity and greatness. And we of this generation journey not as the immigrant with his brute strength or the immigrant's child clawing up into the light with only his own kind to support him, but as Americans, conscious of the awful possibility of failure and the huge possibilities of hope. Thank you very much for listening to me.